0: Megan ball. And
1: this is Brock. We have to get into it. Megan eels.
0: <laughs> what? Eels. What do you mean eels?
1: I'm going to do an eel turn. What? <laughs> it's like a heel turn in wrestling, but with eels.
0: I'm so totally lost. I don't know what rest what? <laughs> I have no idea what
1: you Okay, well, when somebody goes from the the good guy to the bad guy, it's called a heel turn. Oh. It's a narrative device, and I'm talking about eels today, so it's an eel turn. Here's the thing about eels.
0: Oh, God. (laughs) Okay, hit Uh, me with it. I'm ready.
1: We don't know where they come from. And to wit, we do not know how they reproduce. Eels are outside of science. We are not there. We have never been there. We don't know what eels are.
0: I'm like, speechless, what? (laughs) (laughs)
1: so eels uh Mm -hmm. exist yeah they live in the ocean
0: okay but
1: uh over the years and by over the years i mean thousands of years people have been trying to figure out where do eels come from how do they reproduce how do they grow even the the life cycles of the eel because we've isolated some parts and then everything in between we're just trying to use context clues So, like, there was a period where scientists genuinely believed that eels only came from the Bermuda Triangle. Like, that's actual science. Like, and and that's from scientists that don't believe that anything is weird in the Bermuda Triangle, minus that was just the spot where eels could come from. And here's the other side of it, is that what we have learned is that uh, eels can walk on land uh and it is a problem that australia primarily has to deal with but eels will decide
0: that does not surprise me in the it, least it sounds very
1: <laughs> australian uh but what happens it is that they will decide that they want to get to somewhere either on land or a body of water inland and they will just propel themselves out of the water uh and then just keep sort of hopping until they get to where they're going and there is a big problem in australia um especially around a university in Melbourne uh, where they had all these underground tunnels uh, that used to be part of a sewer system that they'd sort of abandoned. Uh, And this university very far inland uh, just kept having eels popping out of like the fountains and like showers. And they're like, I don't understand why are there eels here? Uh, And they were like, I don't know. It's it's Australia. Answers don't exist. So uh, here is part of it it seems like eels when they are adults will make their bay will make their way back to where they were spawned uh and that can be about six thousand kilometers away from where they live uh and in a way the bermuda triangle is sort of worldwide central to where that is so they're not totally wrong about that um so the life cycle of the eel uh involves multiple rounds of internal and external upheaval. So there is a hatched larva, a couple of centimeters in length, that they sort of drift south on ocean currents. And somewhere along the journey, they morph into larger eels that have a pigmented form called elvers. And as they approach fresh water, they change again. So there's a couple of life cycles here that we don't fully understand have never really observed or tracked, but they just wind up everywhere in the world. And there is also part of this journey back to where they spawn from, this again, a 6,000 kilometer journey. Uh, they will get the call internally to go do it, and they will just turn around and take off on that giant journey. And it is so compelling to them that they don't eat or do anything else, they just like pinpoint that thing and they start flying towards it and along the way on this journey home their bodies dissolve it starts with their internal organs and then outside parts so just enough of them survives to sort of get back and reproduce but then they are dead uh, because (laughs) the rest of them has gone away from doing a 6,000 kilometer journey with just this sort of singular ideal of like gotta go fast. Uh, that's about all it is. And then uh, they mostly just disappear. No one knows if they fully just dissolve or if they wind up being eaten by the new larva. It, there's there's no tracking here. And there is a great book by a Swedish writer uh, named Svensson called The Gospel of Eels that sort of documents thousands of years of confusion, but doesn't end. Uh, it, it comes up to now. It's like, Yeah, we still don't have great answers on any of that. Like the 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 origin of us even trying to explain eels actually starts with Aristotle, uh, who concluded there was no other explanation for an eel other than spontaneous generation from mud. So so that's kind of that's kind of it. Uh, it, (laughs) Australia has access to them at a bunch of different points in their life cycle, but no one can pinpoint how or why the things work. They come up on land, and we still basically know just a little more than Aristotle did. And it's very funny that, like, there's not a lot he got horribly wrong, uh, and that his, like, evaluation of eels is not that much different than where we are thousands of years later. Like, no, I I don't know. They could just come from mud. That's kind of what we have.
0: All I can think of right now is, have you ever seen the Mighty Boosh? Yes. There's a song about eels, and now that's the only thing in my head right now.
1: All I see is old Greg.
0: <laughs> yeah, just, oh god. But also,
1: this feels like the TikTok where it was explained to us that fruit isn't real.
0: God, that threw me into an exis- both of us into an existential crisis for, like, an entire day. One of the
1: worst <laughs> days of our lives. Yeah, I, I think about it with some frequency. So to hear, like, that eels, a thing that, like, I, I, I have dated multiple people that cannot- perceive an eel without having a goddamn meltdown. So like I was always like, I don't know, they're they're weird. They're no weirder than spiders. They're they're eels and I suppose a Disney film made them the bad guys. But in retrospect, no, not knowing where something came from at all or how it continues to exist or how it will die is a lot. Yeah. I feel like I come on the show a lot with like, here's a thing that we found in space. And here's the explanation for it, or here's the thing that we found frozen in Antarctica, and here's our best guess. This is one of the old times I think I've come to carrying into the void and been like, we got fucking nothing. We have no idea. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes they're smaller, and then other times they're larger, and then other times they don't exist. I don't- we don't know. (laughs) And Aristotle was as right about it as we are. I- uh- (laughs) I don't know. Do they multiply in Plato's cave? Was Plato more right about it? No one has this info.
0: I mean, I can't imagine there's a lot of money in, like, eel research. Like, it doesn't surprise me that, like, we don't have all the answers yet. But to have so little for how long we've been studying them is kind of alarming. I'm not going to lie to you.
1: There is a thing in the acoustic world, a duck's quack doesn't echo.
0: Oh yeah, it doesn't echo, and mm-hmm. and
1: no one can really pinpoint why. And when I was in college, I did an unholy thing when I found that out, and took a recording of a duck quacking and put echo <laughs> on it in in Pro Tools, and I was like, there, I created a sound that offends God. I've gone against His wishes. <laughs> that
0: opened that opened a seal somewhere. <laughs> there
1: is there was a lot of seals, but I definitely knocked out one at 2 a.m. that night in uni. Yep. But this feels like that, where it's just like. There's got to be a guy somewhere who's just like, "Nah, I'm going to be the guy to crack this." And what I what I've sort of taken from this this Swedish dude's book is that like actually a lot of guys have tried to be that guy and no one's cracked <laughs> it. And I like there's something that like not to challenge it, but is it's, it's kind of sad about being like the one thing I want to be known for figuring out what the fuck is going on with eels. But the only thing sadder than that is being like the fifth guy to try and still not cracking the whole eel thing. Like, damn, I really did waste my entire life and didn't get to the bottom of eels. A, a thing that people don't know is a mystery.
0: Like, this feels straight up like just forbidden knowledge. Like, I should not know this.
1: No one should, and I think that that's the point. I think that that's why none of us know that, is that it would just live in us, and we'd be like, yeah i I know it's Tuesday morning and I'm on the way to work, but like the fuck's up with heels man why don't why don't we have an answer to that yet? Should I call somebody? Should we be putting tax dollars towards it like someone someone do something someone figure it out? We can't just not know what if it's really important. <laughs>
0: What if there's, like, medicine we can get from, like, a certain, like, life cycle of eel? We, we,
1: we will take a plant from the Amazon and we will study it for a hundred years, just in case it's secret medicine plant. Eels, no idea. Maybe the Bermuda Triangle, maybe nothing. Like, it doesn't, uh, yeah, it's a, it is a, it's not forbidden knowledge, it's forbidden lack of knowledge. We shouldn't know the question is
0: there. (laughs) it's like knowing that the answer to the question is 42, but you don't know what the question is. It's the same thing. We know the answer is eels, but we don't know exactly why.
1: (laughs) Do I become eels? Like, I don't know. It's, it's a lot.
0: Is, is the next life cycle of Brock Wilbur an eel? Please weigh in, in the comments. I don't know, man. What's your, what's your next, what's your next evolution? Are you like a Pokemon after this? Do you become an eel? Do we have to put the right stone against you? Ah, suck me like an electric eel.
1: That's my MGMT transition.
0: <laughs> Great, now I know two songs about eels. Do you have a carrying into the void?
1: Uh, so here's my caring for this one. Uh, where do you come from? Honestly, none of us have that perfect origin story. That's the problem with origin stories. Uh, they want to craft a point A to a point B, but you never really had a point A. And point B is a place we're all terrified to wind up at. And Point Seven is a good spot to be in right now. Point Red, also top-notch. Point Penguin, chilly but unexpected. The point being, you never stop being a mystery, even to yourself. You and others can know your tale to greater or lesser degrees. But can anyone ever really know somebody else? That's absolutely true, especially of those that keep asking the wrong questions. Where do you come from and how do you get there? That's pointless. That answers nothing. What are you doing right now? And what do you plan to do next? That's what they should be afraid of.
0: Ooh, very nice. (laughs) Really stuck the landing on that one. I liked it.
1: What do you got for us this week, Meg?
0: It's not as good as eels, unfortunately. Um, I don't know how I can follow that up.
1: It's not as good or as bad as eels because they're completely neutral because we don't know anything. What, what if they are fully <laughs> evil and, and it's important that we don't know what happens?
0: This this could be like a, a whole, like, pinhead type of box situation where we just don't, we don't need to know. Like, the knowledge is the bad part.
1: I, I do have to tell you that I do have um, a Hellraiser Rubik's Cube on my desk at work.
0: No. What were we just saying about seals and you breaking them?
1: I know. So I have two new employees and uh, they started two months ago. And every once in a while they come in and we talk about something that's really upsetting us. And I just sort of point at the box and I say, put it in there. And they've been doing it, but they're both 22. They don't know what Hellraiser is and they did not know what it was.
0: Oh, no. And they looked
1: it up recently and they were like, Brock, oh no, wh- what is that? And why do you have that <laughs> on your desk? And I was like, because I'm trying to solve it. And they're like, we read the Wikipedia. You're not supposed to do that. I'm like, well, where else do you put things? So it has led to... A real existential crisis of of what do we do with the Hellraiser box? Anyway, they're both going to come over and see the first two movies, which I'm very excited for. But uh,
0: very nice.
1: It was very funny to me that they they were looking at the Hellraiser box for Rubik's cube for two months, and they're like, "Don't know why he keeps saying to put all the feelings in there," but like it seems like a good plan.
0: Just uh, I'm just in just in, in absolute awe of that. <laughs> of course, you own that. Why wouldn't you? <laughs>
1: Here's the best part. I keep not solving it, and I keep working a little harder every day at figuring it out. Never had any interest in figuring out a Rubik's Cube, but I've solved three of the six sides.
0: (laughs) No! And every day I go a little closer,
1: and I'm just like, I think that I lose this job on the day that I solve the box.
0: One day you're just going to go missing, and someone's going to be like, Megan, do you know where Brock is? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And just keep on walking. (laughs) I'm not going to
1: go. Here, here is the worst thing that you can say about Brock Wilbur. It is that he is fully aware of everything he is walking into. I Everything that is bad that has ever happened to me has been a choice I have made on some level. It's really difficult to uh, know that.
0: I know that deep inside. But my caring is, uh, I have fallen back onto my favorite topic, which is weird Victorian shit. So, um... Strap in. We're going to talk about some dead Victorians today. This is about a place called Postman's Park in England, and it comes to us from the lovely Lindsay Harris, who I love. Oh, um, Lindsay's wonderful. I follow her on Twitter. She's so good. I love her so much. Um, if you don't follow her on Twitter, you need to. She's wonderful. Um, her books are incredible. Um, but she posted a while ago a thread about Postman's Park, and I had never heard of it before, which was pretty interesting because I know a lot of weird Victorian shit. But this is a story that's both odd, but also kind of lovely. So Postman's Park is a public garden in central London. It's a short distance from St. Paul's Cathedral. It opened in 1880 on the site of a former churchyard and burial ground of St. Boltiff's Aldersgate Church, which is one of the most English names I've said in a very long time. And in 1900, the park became the location for George Frederick Watts Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice. Okay. And it was his life's work to get this done. He was a famous British painter and sculptor at the time, world-renowned, like, you know, painted stuff for the Queen, painted stuff for Parliament, like, huge, huge, big, like, celebrity at the time. And what he wanted was he was very moved one day by a story in the paper of a, um, a governess who had died saving the children of her employer. So he decided that these stories and monuments needed to be memorialized. So he decided that what he wanted was a memorial to ordinary people who died saving the lives of others and who might otherwise be forgotten. And he wanted to do it in the form of what's called a loggia, which is a lawn type of wall with plaques on it. And he decided the plaques would be ceramic tablets. They're very beautiful. They're really pretty. It was opened in 1904 right before he passed away, unfortunately, with four tablets. They were going to plan for 120, and they were going to fill it in as time went on, but they had four to begin with. His wife took over the management of the project after his death and oversaw the installation of 35 more tablets in the following four years um, after he passed away. Later, she became disillusioned with the cost of maintaining it, adding to it, um, and the fact that people didn't seem to be as enthused about it anymore. What happened was it kind of fell out of favor after the First World War, where death became no longer a noble type of glamorized sacrifice, like it was in the Victorian era. Victorians idolized the idea of death, which we all know. But after World War One happened, death was not a thing that anyone enjoyed anymore, so um, the park kind of fell out of use but at the time it was actually a popular place to go
1: there there was a right wing commentator a week or so ago on twitter who was doing this thing about the normal thing that comes up about like it's really embarrassing when men cry we shouldn't allow it etc but like his tag on it was like there's no nobility in that and like me and Viv lost our minds over that because like who the fuck gives a cares about nobility in 2021 that's so chuggy like (laughs) it's just like When is the last time that nobility mattered to anybody? It's not even a concept anymore. So, yes, I totally get in the early 1900s being like, eh, a noble death. That's just death, man. Like, no one needs to do that. That sounds like a big ask.
0: (laughs) No matter how honorable and noble the death is, you're still dead. Right. So Watts worked on getting this open for 20 years. It became, like, his obsession. And it finally became approved. He had the subject of the first 13 tiles personally selected. He had maintained a list of newspaper clippings for years. And he decided that the first tile would be for a uh, woman who became rather famous uh, for having the first tile here. Her name was Alice Ayers. And the tile reads... Alice Ayers, daughter of a bricklayer's laborer, who by intrepid conduct saved three children from a burning house in Union Street Borough at the cost of her own young life, April 24th, 1885. And so what happened was she was a governess and she saved three children, went back inside, and didn't. She succumbed to smoke inhalation and stuff. A lot of the tiles have to do with fire and drowning, which were two very common ways to pass away back then. Um, in fact, we were going through some stuff of my mother's. My mom's from Ireland. And uh, she found some old, like very old pictures from about the Victorian era and um, the early 1900s. And one of them that we found was a picture of my grandmother's brother who dried from downing, drowning when he was 14 in 1916. His name was Joseph Lawler. Um, we found his mass card. We found the um, the all the stuff from, like, the church card and everything like that. And it was kind of a very strange situation to be looking at this picture of someone who was, I guess, what would that be, like, my great-uncle or something? My great-great-uncle who had died drowning in 1916. So that's a very common way people passed away back then. There are tiles of monuments to people who shoved a, a brother out of the way of a, a horse cart and was trampled instead um there is people who drowned at sea by giving their life preservers to children or women so you know they could survive um it's just a very incredibly victorian idea of these type of people who again gave their lives and in, in noble sacrifice you can't say it wasn't but they made it into like an idealized type of thing like this woman alice ayers There was a street named after her. There was a film about her life. There were stories written about her. And she became, I don't want to say that she became like a a celebrity, but she became very, very popular because of the way in which she passed away. So it's, it's just a very kind of weird Victorian thing. So they stopped adding to it in the early 1900s. And the park kind of fell into disrepair. It was still open. People could still walk it. But You know, no one really kind of knew what it was or what or where it was. And there was a small push in the early 2000s for it to be kind of cleaned up and for for there to be kind of more education about it. And in 2009, the Diocese of London decided to add a new tablet, the first new tablet in 78 years. And the tile honors a man who saved a child from drowning in a nearby canal, but drowned himself. And it's the last tablet that was added. They haven't added another one since. But they made an app. You could walk the uh, the park now and like look at the tiles that are still there. And they've repaired them and they've cleaned them up. And you can read newspaper clippings. And you can look at pictures of the people mentioned. You can read about Watts and his life and how this became the kind of obsession of his life. And it's just a very weird... Little chunk of Victoriana that still exists, all about kind of the the memorial of what they consider to be a proper death, and I think that is interesting and thought provoking. I'd love to kind of go there and just look at it because it looks very pretty. It's in a really lovely park. The tiles are all beautifully done in kind of like an almost like like proto Art Nouveau type of way. They're very colorful. They're full of flowers. So, yeah, that's Postman's Park. If you're ever in London, seek it out it's It's worth you know an hour to walk around it.
1: I find it fascinating because I'm always fascinated with legacy, and this one has so many layers where it's like I want that guy that was obsessed with this and and fought an upward battle his entire life to no avail and to no one's interest to keep this going. I want him to understand what an app is and how it's immortalized now and worldwide, but also (laughs) the depth of it that goes beyond just a name and a situation written on a tile and how this can happen. But then I also want further down the person that died doing a selfless act that had no memorializing or legacy in the moment had no idea that what they'd done would be something that for centuries people would talk about what they'd done there. They just reacted. I want them to know that there is a further legacy that a guy spent his life trying to keep it up but lost that battle, but now there's an app, and trying to explain like I know you're several hundred years old it it it's a it's a thing that everyone has in their pocket. everyone in their pocket right now can think about how great you are uh it's just there that's that's how the world works now, uh should they choose to want it so like you're you're famous forever
0: <laughs> It's kind of weird that we all have a cursed piece of glass in our pocket that shows us terrible, terrible things, but can also show us. You know, the noble sacrifice of, a, of, of, you know, London governess who saved some children, but, you know, didn't save herself. And I don't know how you'd go about explaining that to someone from that era. You know, I think the Victorians would be fascinated. Um, they loved technology and they loved stuff like that. Um, they wouldn't be calling it witchcraft or anything. I think they would take it in and do more memorializing and stuff. Imagine giving a Victorian something that was like a phone camera nowadays. They'd lose their fucking minds. <laughs>
1: Do you have a caring to go with <laughs> they this? They love
0: photography so much. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, I do. The caring into the void today is, May you go down in infamy. May your name and your deeds be remembered long after you are just dust left in an expensive box. May you make an impression, even on just one soul, who will think fondly of you for years to come. Your impact does not have to be great. You don't have to save the world to be remembered. Sometimes you just need to reach one person. It's amazing what people remember sometimes. The drunk girl in a dimly lit bathroom of a shitty bar telling, that you, telling you that you look beautiful. The stranger who showed you a moment of kindness and grace when you did not know enough about you to judge if you were worthy of either. They didn't know you, but they still gave it to you. They still gave hope freely to help you. Kindness is a well with no bottom, a resource to be shared liberally and not hoarded. Keep it at your side like a weapon to be wielded against a world that wishes to do us harm. Grand gestures can be great, sweeping press conferences of self-congratulations, but sometimes just one small act of kindness can make all the difference in the world.
1: Uh, I, I think we should go out on that one. Uh, you uh, you got me with that.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no,
1: no, that was... Uh, uh, I think I'm, I've run out of compliments for a thing being good, and this one doesn't, uh, I don't, uh, yeah, why don't you take us out on
0: that? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your hearts dark and true, and your teeth sharp and many, and we will see you next time in the void. Bye-bye-bye. <laughs> bye bye bye